Tim Hag is taking a break from his study through Philippians. He'll start up again in the fall, but in the meantime, we'll be posting Tim's past teachings on the weekly Torah portion taken from the triennial or three-year reading cycle. These lectures were recorded during Shabbat service at Beit Hillel, a Messianic synagogue in Tacoma, Washington. During these sessions, Tim reads through his written commentary and occasionally pauses to make application or to expound on a topic or point. You can find a link in the show notes below to download Tim's written commentary. Once you've done that, grab your Bible and a pen and let's get started. Our portion for this week is Parashah 139, which covers Deuteronomy chapter 17. the very first, by the way, what's the word decalogue mean anyway? Ten words, which is exactly how it's always spoken of in the Bible itself, the ten words. Well, there's more than ten words in the Ten Commandments, right? So what does that mean? Ten things, ten important nuggets. And what's the first one? I am Adonai, your God, who brought you out from the land of Egypt. Now that's not listed first if you're reading some of the uh, Christian lists, because they leave that one out and they divide another one to get 10. But that is the first word. This opening of the 10 words, or 10 commandments, if you've learned them that way, is a summary of the whole, for it establishes the relationship between Israel and God, and shows that this relationship came about by the activists having chosen her and redeemed her out of Egypt. It is fitting then that the second of the 10 words prohibits the worship of any other God or the use of idols in worship. Right? If God is the one who has redeemed you out of slavery then most certainly you should give all worship to him and to nothing else and no one else. Idolatry in all of its modes is obviously and completely devastating to the establishment of the covenant God has forged with his people. This is so because all worship, whether genuine or false, affects all aspects of life. Is that too broad of a statement? Well, that's, we need to always expand our understanding of what the word worship means. We worship God in word, in deed, in thought, right? Worship means to live life His way, and in so doing, to give Him the honor. Therefore, every part of our life touches an aspect of worship. What does worship mean anyway? It means to give up my will in favor of the one I worship. Right? It means to give up my will or to give over my will to the one that I worship. Now you say, well, but wait a minute. Um, am I not supposed to submit to my employer? I give up my will. Yes, but you do that because you do it as under the Lord. Right? Because that's what God said to do. Submit to those who have the rule over you. Okay? So when we submit to one another, it still is an act of obeying God, which ultimately is an act of worship. Obedience to God is a life of worship. All too often we compartmentalize into secular and sacred. There's no such thing. 
If we're, if we're children of the Lord, there's no such thing as secular. Everything we do, we must do as unto the Lord. You say, well, Tim, it, it, it hardly seems possible that I spend my whole day down at discount tire, changing tires, and that's unto the Lord. Yes, it is. The way that you are honest, the way that you work well, the way that you give, uh, you say yes to those who have uh, the authority to tell you to do it this way and not that way. The way you don't, the, the, how you carefully guard your tongue when you slip with the wrench <laughs> and scar your knuckles. <laughs> now, is anyone perfect in that worship? No. No, we're not perfect, but we're seeking to be. We're seeking to be more and more like Yeshua. How is that different than honor? How is worship different than honor? It's an overlap. When you honor someone who is worthy to be honored, you're doing it, if, if you have it in your mind, you're saying, Lord, you told me to honor those that I'm supposed to honor. Right? It's obedience to Him, isn't it? When I do my work well, it's obedience to Him. When I have joy in this life, what, is, what do the Scriptures say? Paul says, rejoice. Oh, and in that case you forgot it. And again I say, rejoice. Okay. You, yeah, no, you don't worship the person necessarily, obviously, that you honor, but you worship the one who told you to honor. Right? This was one of the, this was one of the, the, the important aspects when in, during the time of the Reformation, there was this, uh, this re-understanding of what worship really was. Because, let's face it, uh, the Christian church, particularly the Roman Catholic church, held sway for hundreds of years. If you wanted to worship, you had to do it the way you were supposed to, at the place you were supposed to, when you were supposed to, toward the, the person who was leading the worship, etc., etc. You had trinkets that you had to use. You had things that you had to use to worship. And if you didn't do it right, you weren't worshiping. And what did that all lead to? That I worship one day a week. I worship one part of one day a week. Let's go to worship. We have the worship service. Well, there's nothing wrong with that term. Because there's corporate worship, there's individual worship, and so forth. But worship is the broadest perspective of what it means to be a child of God. I think sometimes, I kind of got on a tangent here, sorry, but I think sometimes as Americans, we, we, we don't understand this nearly as well as some of the earlier generations did in Europe who had kings and queens. You know, there was a time when if you did the wrong thing in the presence of a king or a queen, you could lose your life, even if you didn't intend to. There was a sense of, of my whole life is somehow governed by these people. I had better be very careful how I speak about them. What I, you understand what I'm saying? Okay, now, what about God who is king of all the universe? <laughs> so we have to kind of get rid of this secular, sacred thing and recognize that the things that are, in our view, mundane are, in God's view, not mundane at all. They are the necessary things of life which we do in a way to honor Him. 
some of us have to constantly remind ourselves about that with foot on the gas pedal because we'd like to get there quicker than slower, right? And But are we not supposed to obey the laws? Yes, even if we think that they're not all that great. Now, the only time that we don't obey the law that's set forth in, a, in our country is when it's contrary to what God has said. Whether we should obey God or man, Peter says, you, you tell us. The answer is obvious. We will obey God, even if it requires us to be punished for it. And that's happened throughout history amongst those who are true believers. Okay, I see a hand, another hand. Do we have a microphone? Oh, it's right up here. Uh, Margaret. Margaret Gonzalez. So I guess it's not necessarily uh, secular and sacred. It's more like godly character and ungodly character. Exactly. And what, and you know, do you notice that there's, that the Bible doesn't talk about neutral? It says either you're honoring God or you're dishonoring him. So we have to broaden our understanding of what it means to honor God. When we do what is right, when we do what is appropriate, when we do what is according to his ways, we are honoring him. Whether we're working on our car, or whether we're working at our work, or whether we're taking a vacation, or whether we're, you know, whatever. Broaden the circle of worship to one's whole life. It affects all of life, legal, religious, economic, social, and civil. God reveals to us in the opening word of the ten that if Israel were to engage in idolatry, it would bring about her ruin and cause her to fail in accomplishing the mission for which she was created. In our portion, and by the way, why was Israel created as a nation? To give honor to the Lord. In our portion this Shabbat, we have a specific instruction based in a most foundational way upon the first words of the Decalogue. Here with the setting of the theocratic, that is, God ruling, the, the divine rule of Adonai in view, we have the status, uh, the statutes regarding what is to be done when idol worship is discovered. From these instructions, we may glean timeless principles for our own worship and gain a glimpse into the character and attributes of God himself. Our text opens with a prohibition against bringing a defective animal as a sacrifice to God. Such a practice is abhorrent to the Lord. And it really is the word toiva. Now, it's used in regard to homosexuality, in eating meat from unclean animals, of foreign gods in general, as well as the custom of the foreign nations, that is, customs connected with idolatrous worship. It is a strong word, usually translated abomination or something to that effect, and shows that God has no place whatsoever for worship that has any connection with idols. He neither can tolerate, he neither can tolerate it, nor will he allow its inclusion into the worship he has prescribed. Being able to look at this prohibition after the coming of Messiah gives us the advantage of seeing the picture more fully. God's unflinching position on the issue of idolatry or any kind of syncretism. Syncretism is when you join two things together which are opposed. Things which essentially differ. Syncretism clearly foreshadows the unique and holy sacrifice of Yeshua. And that's the primary issue. All of this was given the sacrifices, the clean and unclean laws, the laws of uh, ritual purity and all of that, were given to show that there has to be a separation between what is idolatrous and what is the worship of God. You can't mix the two. He will not accept it. 
For to have offered a defective sacrifice would have been to muddy the picture of Yeshua's sacrificial death. What we learn instead is that the sacrifice of Yeshua, to which every sacrifice in the tabernacle and the temple pointed, was in every way perfect and therefore was fully accepted by the Father as accomplishing its goal. It is this impeccable character of Yeshua's self-sacrifice that makes it fully acceptable before the Father and by which we may be assured that our sins have, in fact, been entirely expunged before the bar of God's justice. And excuse me for reminiscing about old hymns, but this is one by Toplady that uh, is one of my favorites, at least by way of the wording. From whence this fear and unbelief? Hath not the Father put to grief his, his spotless Son for me? And will the righteous judge of men condemn me for the debt of sin which Lord was charged to thee? Complete atonement thou hast made, and to the utmost farthing paid whate'er thy people owed. Nor can his wrath on me take place, if sheltered in thy righteousness and sprinkled with thy blood. If thou hast my discharge procured and freely in my room endured the whole of wrath divine, payment God cannot twice demand, first at my bleeding surety's hand, and then again at mine. Turn then my soul unto thy rest. The merits of thy great high priest have bought thy liberty. Trust in his efficacious blood, nor fear thy banishment from God, since Jesus died for thee. Thus we may also learn something about the character of God from this, namely, that he will accept nothing that detracts from the perfections of his Son. Now we may take this to heart as we approach our own worship. Are there things in which we engage that detract from the glory and perfection of Yeshua? Do we in any way bring, as it were, a defective sacrifice to our worship, which by its defect detracts from the very sacrifice of Yeshua that is essential to all of our worship. What would constitute such a defect? First, believing that we contribute at least part of the price of our redemption. What does salvation by works, what is it? It's no salvation at all. Why? Because our works don't mount to anything in relationship to what was owed. Secondly, Emphasizing the success of the congregation to the exclusion of giving the glory to Yeshua as the head and master of our community. I've watched groups become big and, and prosperous, building huge buildings, many, many, duplicating themselves all over the country. And I'm not saying that that's wrong at all. But there's always that temptation to say, we really have it. We've got it. We've done it. No. Even where two or three are gathered together, God is there ready to be the judge of what is right and what is wrong. Failing to speak forth the work of Yeshua for fear of those who have rejected him. We've all experienced this. I don't think there's one of us that haven't. We've been in a situation where we were urged perhaps to share the gospel with somebody, but we thought, well, this really isn't the place. This really isn't, I don't know how he'll take it, so forth and so on. Well, if the Lord is urging us to say something, we had better say it. And if the Lord tells us to be quiet, we should keep quiet. You're absolutely right. This is wisdom. Compromising our beliefs in Yeshua as the only means of salvation in order to accept by, uh, be accepted by others. This is happening in our movement today. Whatever you want to call this, a Torah movement or whatever. There are those who are saying, well, you know, observant Jewish people who have 
rejected Yeshua and said he's a false Messiah, um, God's going to accept them anyway because they're doing so many good things. No. If you confess with your mouth, that's pretty clear, isn't it? If you confess with your mouth that Yeshua is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Paul's pretty clear about that. I think we should be too. Now, it doesn't mean that we're judges of who's saved and who's not saved in every way. Someone who's living an ungodly life, you have a big question mark over where they are in their relationship with God. But God is the ultimate judge. We don't judge the hearts. We can, we can warn somebody saying, you know, if you're truly born from above, if you truly have the, the Spirit of God within you, there, the things that you're doing and living are contrary. You know, we should encourage and exhort, but we cannot ultimately judge. But while bringing a defective sacrifice is clearly linked with idolatry in our text, it is nonetheless far less overt than what the parashah goes on to describe, that is, actually worshiping other gods. We might note, however, that the fact that the two are linked together by their close proximity should warn us that overt idolatry begins with the neglect of God's prescriptions regarding worship in the first place. I was just amazed at our house. I'm walking up the front steps, and our front steps are solid cement. Okay? Solid cement. Three steps up before the fourth one up to the up to the uh, porch. And they're solid cement. We didn't pour them. They were there when we bought the house. Out of a tiny little crack, right in the middle, something's growing. <laughs> yes, and what is that weed that grows that? Morning glory. Why is it that the things that you want to bloom, you have to, you have to just pamper and protect and water, but morning glory will grow no matter where without any attention or anything. And the interesting thing is that when a plant grows in a little crack, it doesn't split the semen all at once. It splits it a little at a time. And that's what happens when we begin to neglect the things of God that are laid out clearly in the scriptures. We say, well, that one's, you know, that one's for somebody else. That's for a long time ago. We don't need to do that. We don't need to care about that. It's not on our, not on our plate to do. Whew. That was one of my big problems with a certain hermeneutic that I was taught in seminary, and it was that their, God's laws are only for this time and not for this time. And I say, well, how do you know that? As soon as somebody tells us this part of the Bible doesn't, appeal, doesn't apply to you then, you, then who becomes the judge of what does apply? Man. We have to be very careful with that. Now granted, you know, there are certain laws given to women that are not given to men and vice versa. Certain laws given to kings, certain laws given to, you know, we understand that. That's very clear in the scriptures. But there are certain things that God expects and commands of us all. And they all start with the heart to say, yes, Lord. And that's the essence of worship. While bringing a defective sacrifice is clearly linked with idolatry, it's less overt, as I said, than actually worshiping other gods. An idol, bowing down to some whatever. What is striking about the section, 
which is before us, is the unbending severity demanded of Israel in regard to punishing the idolatry, as well as the corresponding wrath which God himself displays. Why? A little leaven leavens the whole lump. There is no mercy here. Brazen idolatry has taken the sinner beyond the place of return. Our text specifically prohibits the worship of the sun or moon or the stars. This specific prohibition is found only here in the Torah and no doubt is directed toward a paganism that Israel had encountered among her neighbors and with which she perhaps was flirting. Do you know that you find astrology te texts at de in the, amongst the Dead Sea Scrolls? We don't know exactly all that they, you know, how far they went with that, but did they believe that the place of the stars and the place of the moving stars, which are planets, um, did they think that those somehow had a control upon one's life? Apparently so. So Israel had, had encountered this un, undoubtedly amongst her neighbors and perhaps was wondering if that was for them. We may derive this from the phrase, something I never commanded. He says, don't worship that which I've not commanded. It might well have been that some within the nation were actually teaching that God had commanded the worship of the heavenly bodies and were attempting to get others to follow in their practice by ascribing it to him. Now, from an ancient viewpoint, you could understand this. They understood that the, that the, that the tides of the ocean were somehow related to the moon. I mean, they, were, they, they saw things that happened time and again, and they began to make a correlation. They say, oh, okay, well... If, the, if, if that is, has some control upon us, maybe all of the stars and all the planets do. We know that a similar heresy plagued the nation throughout her history and was likewise a threatening foe among the communities of the way in the early centuries. Paul speaks of the elemental things of the world which characterize pagan religion and which continue to be a problem among some of the believing communities. These elemental things of the world may well be a reference. I can't be dogmatic on it, but I think it's very possible be a reference to the notion that the heavenly bodies, sun, moon, and stars, governed the lives of the people. We know that early Gnosticism gave much credence to such astrology, and that the apostles taught against such practice and belief, based, no doubt, upon the very commandments of Torah found in our text. Likewise, our society is more and more given to astrology and the occult from which it springs. The so-called New Age movement, which is actually not new at all, lays great stress upon the mystical and astrological powers of the planets and stars. Instead of seeing that these were created to give God glory to God, they are turned into gods themselves. As those who are called into communion with God through the work of our Messiah, we must give due diligence not to allow any such idolatrous notions to take root in our hearts. Horoscopes, astrological signs, fortune-telling, and all such things are detestable to God and should be so to us as well. I remember as a young boy, you know, in our paper, we get the paper every morning, there was a horoscope in there. And I remember looking at it one time and asking my dad what that is, and he said, it's idolatry. Don't read it. Skip past it. This summer, we are giving our podcast listeners a variety of special offers each week. Through July 7th, you can get the book, Why We Keep the Torah, 10 Persistent Questions by Tim Haig on sale for 25% off with the coupon code 2021Y. Those who have felt a calling to keep the Torah usually find themselves faced with the same persistent questions. These questions are always used to challenge our observance of the Torah as disciples of Yeshua. In Why We Keep the Torah, 10 Persistent Questions, 
Tim Hegg looks at 10 of the most common questions posed to those who strive to keep Torah. Tim addresses questions about food laws, animal sacrifices, the Sabbath, circumcision, festival days, and more by looking at scriptures where these commands are given. Get a copy today for your home library or as a gift for family and friends. That's Why We Keep the Torah, 10 Persistent Questions, the book by Tim Hegg on sale for 25% off with the coupon code 2021Y through July 7th. That's coupon code 2021Y, 2021WHY, 2021Y. Get answers to 10 common questions asked of those who have decided to keep the commands of God. Other options available in this product are 10 audio and video sessions with Tim Hegg teaching through each chapter of this book. In these lectures, Tim adds extra commentary and explanations as he answers each question. These resources are also available digitally as direct downloads. Okay, now let's get back to the study. The punishment for idolatry as described as prescribed in our prasha is severe, but the road to its enactment is just. Nonetheless, a person could not be put to death except in the face of two or three witnesses. And then these witnesses must be so sure of their testimony that they would, as Sherry has pointed out, be willing to throw the first stone. Thus, in the face of a severe punishment, there is an equal safeguard against the possible misuse of power at the hands of the judges. And why should the idolaters be put to death? so that the rest of the nation would fear and not follow in their errant ways. Apparently, capital punishment is designed to help keep the offense from spreading. Yes, in God's economy of things, capital punishment is both a satisfying of his justice as well as a, a, de, a determent, deterrent to such sins. That's kind of been given up in our day, that capital punishment is not a deterrent. Well, uh, obviously, we don't have the power of capital punishment in many cases, right? So how do we apply this? We apply it by simply saying, don't allow the things of the world to captivate our thoughts, to captivate our time, and so forth and so on. Don't spend our time ingesting the idolatry of our world. Uh, I don't know who has the, I don't know who has the uh, microphone. Okay. A very prominent scripture that comes to my mind is Isaiah 2.6. Mm -hmm. For you have abandoned your people, the house of Jacob, because they are filled with influences from the east. They are soothsayers like the Philistines, and they strike bargains with the children of foreigners. Yep. Okay, we had another hand over here. Uh, Ryan had his hand up. Yeah, so I'm thinking about how um, how idolatry affects the whole congregation. And by the time it gets to the point of, you know, I don't, I don't know, does anyone go from, in a community setting, or like children of Israel setting, uh, I don't think anyone goes from worshiping Hashem to worshiping idols just, you know, like that. It right. happens over time. Yep. So... By the time you get to the point of needing to stone people, you know, it should have been noticeable before then. So yes. in this sense of making application, how do we how do we actually, you know, be that accountable to each other, you know, without being, you know, without focusing on the specks in other people's eyes and right, missing right. logs in our own eyes? 
I think the first, the first answer I would give is a positive answer. Encourage one another to love and good works. Mm -hmm. To encourage one another in worship to the Lord. Encourage one another in um, taking in the Word of God and meditating upon it and talking about it. Um, let that be a regular thing in our families, in our homes. Mm -hmm. Because there's no way that you can have the Spirit of God within you, be reading the Word of God and engaging in regular prayer and not be convicted if you're <laughs> dabbling in something you shouldn't be mm -hmm. dabbling in. Right. I, I agree. I think, uh, I think that should be a goal for us is Absolutely. that we would follow the Lord so fully, each family, each individual, right. that, you know, and that's where our focus is, is how right. can we serve the Lord, right. you know, with all our heart, soul, and might. And, you know, it's not, it's not the... The little thing, the little idolatry that sneaks in, that it becomes our focus. But it does stand out because our focus is in following the Lord. And I think we have to always caution ourselves not to have this idea that if you don't do it my way, it's not holy. I mean, this is what has caused the groups, you know, some of the uh, some of the groups, the Amish and, and others, to segregate themselves from society. Because you have to wear your hat this way. You have to, well, and the Orthodox too, right? The Orthodox Jews. You, you have to do it this way or we don't want anything to do with you. So you make all kinds of extra little things that make you look like you're being holy. Where does it start? It starts in the heart, in the mind, in our thoughts, in our pleasures, in our goals. That's where, that's where it begins. It's not whether you know you wear your hat this way or you wear that or wear this or the other thing or you seclude yourself from this or seclude yourself from that you know some people don't like classical music <laughs> some people think classical music is filled with all kinds of nonsense okay we're not talking about a genre of music we're not talking about trying to find a way to put a box about in which everyone must fit that's not what it's about it's about Loving the Lord with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our might, and our neighbor as ourself, and letting that touch all aspects of our life. I just wanted to give a word of encouragement since you mentioned about the fellow that's working all day long changing tires and so on and so on. Um, I, I have experienced more than one time a fellow at Les Schwab in our town who is really doing uh, his work unto the Lord because he says something every time you go in there that just lifts your spirit, and it only is a sentence of one thing, sure. uh, something about the car or how well I take care of it or, or something else. But I also wanted to say I learned a tremendous lesson about the astrological stuff. When I was driving the school bus years ago with little kids and high school kids both, we had the radio on, and during the radio time, they always had this little business where they'd read today's astrological sign with the interpretation of what this meant to you. And then several weeks, they, I didn't like that, uh, but the kids wanted the radio on, so stupidly, I let it go on. Then the fourth grade teacher, who was in our Bible study, said that her class was becoming more and more unruly, that it was getting more and more difficult for the, quote, good, unquote, kids to be disciplined. And so I said, well, they're listening to the astrological signs. You suppose there's a connection? So we went to the schoolroom with the, with the um, approval of the superintendent, and we put the oil across the door, and we walked around the school, and we prayed in the schoolroom, and we told 
the deceitful enemy there to get out and leave these kids alone. And then I turned the radio to a different station. And I was so surprised because the kids hardly even noticed that the the astrological thing was gone. And then about two weeks later, the teacher said, you'll never believe what's happened. Those kids come in, they sit down, they listen, and they respond. The enemy is so tricky. Yes. So what does this tell us about ourselves as created beings? It tells us this, that like it or not, we are affected by the societal changes that happen around us. God knew that allowing idolatry to go unchecked would inevitably lead the nation as a whole into the despicable practice. What we look at most and think about most often is what we will inevitably become. As one thinks in his soul, it doesn't say heart, it says soul, so is he. And uh, one preacher told me one time long ago, it is psychologically demonstrable that one becomes like that at which he most often gazes. I was uh, thinking about what we were talking about earlier, and that is there's a danger um, that, and I would say we who are um, established in the gospel, in the uh, in the Torah, in the gospel, mm-hmm. uh, to disassociate ourselves from other Christians. Yes, um, and I think there's probably a selfish reason for that because we keep thinking, okay, I want to be closer to heaven. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and this is true in my life where, okay, if I had my selfish way, I would just work here and that's it. But that's not what the Lord has required of me. So I sure. work with other Christians sure. Sure. to, and, and many Christians will, when I first uh, started working with another organization, start teaching out of what they call the Old Testament. And they said, We've never been taught out of the Old right, Testament right, before. Right. And it just blew my mind. Yeah. And so for, for about the first year and a half or so, I showed how the relationship existed between what they called the Old Testament and the apostolic writings. Right, right. Uh, we, can, we can introduce things that way. Absolutely. Uh, with, I, I think and being careful to examine everything by the scriptures so that we don't get swayed by right. it. I think it's one of things. the detriments but of, of the Messianic movement that the Messianic movement has set itself against the Christian church. Um, it's not un, uncommon in renewal movements that one has to, it's almost like, um, it's almost like if you're jumping across a small stream you want you want to clear it by 20 feet rather than just by 20 inches. So you you know you take a run and jump as far as where you can. Um, the, the the point simply is is that there are a lot of good good uh, honest Christian brothers and sisters in churches that that may think we're out to lunch for keeping the Sabbath and so forth and so on. Well, we shouldn't put a chip on our shoulder and say, well, you know, too bad for you. We sh- we should seek to find ways to 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 dialogue and to affirm the fact that, that God has people in all different places and in all different uh, ways that are His, okay? And we're not the final judge. So we need to have an open heart and be willing to, to live the truth and speak the truth in kind ways. Yeah, okay. Um, I um, need to ask about this. Uh, I see a lot of believers who are now um, doing yoga, and way back long ago when I walked away from the practices I used to do, 
I walked away from that without even exploring it because I felt in my spirit it was just wrong uh, for me. Right. And now I'm getting to the point at which I fall sometimes. And I know it's from weakness, and I need to seek out a class where I can get teaching and, and help with this. And I'm scared to death yeah. that they're going to in, be inclined that way. I don't know what to do. Well, we could talk with this gentleman here, this physical therapist. There are, there are, uh, there are uh, the exercises don't have to have yoga. And I, I think yoga is a snare. Uh, it, I don't think you can separate. I don't think you can separate the, the meditation kinds of things that yoga uh, incorporates from the the actual exercise, and I think it's a snare. But you can have the exercise without that extra, without those other things. It's 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 extra, absolutely. It is Buddhist. It's it's found uh, founded in Buddhism. Yes. It. And Hindu, but there's 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 kind of a both, isn't there? Yeah. And, it, and it's interesting, uh, Ken. I hadn't thought about for a while what you said this morning, when Tim was talking about when to talk, and then you said and when not to talk. And I had a blessing this week. A elderly lady lives across the street from us. Um, I was taking her a piece of fish, and she was saying, "I have a you're Jewish. I I have a question for you." I was listening on the news the other day, and there was women rabbis talking. Is that permissible? <laughs> so it, it opened the door. And she has told me several times, she's a Lutheran. Yeah. And I, I shared with her as best I could in, you know, five minutes, how close, how many things that she and I believe the same. Right. I said, bottom line is, Yeshua is the Messiah. He died for our sins. And we both believe he was resurrected. I said, there are some areas where you and I would disagree. But I said, we agree on the foundational stuff. And then she talked about when she quit going to the Lutheran church. And it had to do with her marrying another man whose both their spouses had died. And she said, the pastor wouldn't marry him. And she said some things about him. And then she said, and he was a devout Mason. Oh. <laughs> I knew in my spirit that was not a discussion to have. This lady needed encouragement and uplifting right. Right. and asked me a question right. about women rabbis. I was not to talk about. Yeah. It was not a time. Right. So that was a blessing. Yeah. Oh, one more thing. When you're in Israel, I have been to maybe a half a dozen archaeological sites, synagogues, mm -hmm. beautiful mosaics, astrological right. to the core. Yeah, it's, it's not certain whether they, what all that means. Um, there's been discussion on that from a scholarly ba basis, but some feel that the, that the astrological mosaics in the floor were not actually being used as astrological, but simply talking about different phases of the, of the year. But uh, when, you, when you collate it with Qumran, you, you're, I think it tips towards the fact that they were giving in to, to some of that, if, if not uh, a lot of it in some places. Yeah. There, there, was, there were some that I've seen that, I mean, it's, it's past just 
Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, and the images that are that are part of the floor too. I've known people who were highly advanced in yoga and came out of it and became believers and were experts and and they said it's not harmless exercise no it is spiritual yeah and they said if you do yoga you will unequivocally be possessed soon <laughs> so you know pass the word yeah it doesn't fly right well it doesn't we're not going to do it here but if you do a study on the uh, infiltration of eastern religions into the united states um, it happened a lot through music because some of the musicians were very, very much involved in Eastern religions. Um, I knew a gentleman uh, who was uh, well known. Um, you could Google a yogi meets Messiah. Uh, a gentleman named Ron Cohen who ended up being considered an, an ascended master in Hinduism and he had a, a large following. And he has plenty to say about yeah. this. But he said that in Eastern religions, the Americans that are in Eastern religions, if you're in India or wherever, easily 50% of them are Jewish. Yeah. Because there's a hunger there. Right. They're looking that, for a mystical experience. That yeah. is not being satisfied. If they're rejecting Torah, then they're going to fall for anything. Right. But that's sad. Okay, good. We're going a bit long, so I'm going to cut this short and we can talk about it further. But um, go to page six of your notes at the top. Our Torah portion also gives other clear requirements for a king in Israel. He cannot be a foreigner, that is a no-cri, which usually describes someone from a pagan nation who was still identified with paganism, but was to come from the midst of your brethren. Likewise, the appointed king was not to multiply horses, which means he was not to build such an army as to cause him to rely upon his own military strength rather than upon the power of God. He was not to use his royal position to amass wealth, nor was he to multiply wives, which most likely refers to making politically, uh, political alliances through marriage to daughters of other kings. It's well known that in the ancient Near East there would be marriages between a king and uh, another king's daughter. He would never even see the daughter and never even be in the same Location. They would just have a legal wedding, um, and that would link them, link the two nations together, uh, because now the the two kings are are related through through marriage. Such political, of course, uh, uh, Solomon did did all of these, didn't he? So wisdom, he, he he was wise in the sense that he knew had a lot of knowledge, but he was not wise in the sense that he didn't use his knowledge for the right for the right things. Such political alliances could lead to the compromising, the compromising the clear and discriminating laws of God. How was the king to assure that he would fulfill the righteous requirements of his royal position? He was to have his own copy of the Torah, written by himself before the priest to assure accuracy, I take it, and was to study it, it shall be with him, literally, and to read it constantly so that as he governed, he would do so in accordance with God's divine revelation. In other words, the proper discharge of his office could only occur through his personal acquaintance with the Torah, and his willingness to submit to its precepts and commandments. It is interesting that he was to write a copy of the Torah himself. Why? I can tell you this from experience. And when I was in a college music major, you know what some of our professors made us do? They made us copy a score of Beethoven. They made us copy a score of Bach. 
You know what happens when you copy a score? You say, oh, you, no, you say, wait a minute. I saw that somewhere else. Oh yeah, that's over here too. Wait a minute, over here it's the same, but it's upside down. And you're thinking, that's amazing. I, you know, then you listen to it again and you say, ah, that's the theme. Then he turns it upside down over here. And you go back and you say to the professor, they say, well, what did you find, Tim? Tell us what you found. Well, I found this leitmotif. I found this small little piece and it's repeated six or seven times and it's found upside down or inverted, we say. Inverted three or four times here. He said, exactly. Good. That's what you're supposed to. But I would have never known that if I hadn't copied the score. You know what happens when you copy the Bible? You write it down. You see it in a way that you read it in a way that you, you remember it. It's in writing his own copy in the presence of the Levites, he was personally acknowledging each and every letter and thus affirming that the whole of the Torah was that by which he would be governed. He could never claim in the future that something in the Torah had been added or deleted, for the copy he had was the product of his own hand in the presence of the Levites. Here we see the emphasis upon the utter integrity and authority of the written text of the Torah. Moreover, we read nothing here about a supposed unwritten tradition that accompanied the written Torah and which was supposedly necessary for the obeying of the Torah, which the rabbis, the rabbinic literature says, you don't know the Bible unless you, unless you read our, our interpretation of it. Had such a body of tradition been passed on by Moses, they say that it was given to Moses at Sinai and passed on orally. Why do they say that? So they wanted to have authority. Everybody knows that that's not the case. I talked with an Orthodox rabbi one time and I said, do you really believe that God gave the whole of the Talmud and the Mishnah to Moses at Sinai? He said, no, of course not. Nobody believes that. I said, why do you keep teaching it then? He said, so our bar and bat mitzvahs will, will, will follow what we're saying. I mean, he just was forthright about it. Well, if such a tradition had been given to Moses, surely the king would have been required to know this unwritten oral law as well. But rather the sole rule of authority noted in our text is the written Torah. Now turn to your back page and we'll, we'll close this off. Why was there such clear identification of what a king was to do and not to do? Because ultimately it was talking to us about Yeshua. Yeshua is ultimately the king, right? Okay? Look at the table on page 8. He must be an Israelite, not a foreigner. What do we read in Romans 1.3? Concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. Why is it important that Yeshua be a descendant of David? Because he's king. The king is not to amass wealth. 2 Corinthians 8.9 For you know the grace of our Lord Messiah Yeshua that though he was rich, Yet for his sake he became poor, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. He's not to rely upon military strength, that is, increase the number of horses. Yeshua answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting, so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. He's not to multiply wives. Husband, Love your, love your wife, just as Messiah also loved the assembly and gave himself up for her. It doesn't say assemblies. He is the husband of one wife. And that wife is metaphorically all of those who are believers. And finally, the king is to know and follow the Torah. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. He fulfills all of the requirements of a king. 
that were laid down. And I think that's why those requirements were given, so that we would continue to look for that ultimate king who satisfies all of those requirements to perfection. We hope you found this discussion to be helpful in your Torah studies for this week. Our mission at Torah Resource is to provide biblically-based education for disciples of Yeshua. If you would like more information about Torah Resource or to browse our product catalog and free resources, please go to TorahResource.com. To download a free triennial Torah portion reading schedule, please check the show notes for this episode. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe and share this resource with your interested family and friends. Be sure to join us next week as we study through the Torah with Tim Haig.